0: Welcome to The Jury Is Out, a podcast for trial attorneys who want to sharpen their skills and better serve their clients. Your co-hosts are John Simon, founder of the Simon Law Firm, and St. Louis attorney Eric Veith. Welcome again to The Jury Is Out. We're all busy and you might have missed some of our podcasts. Here's one of our favorites. I hope you enjoy it. We'll be back with a new episode of The Jury Is Out next Wednesday. Well, welcome again, everybody. It's uh, John Simon and Eric Veith, and we're back at the Simon Law Firm. And today we're continuing our discussion about opening statement. We've had parts one and two, and now part three, which is how how would you characterize this part three? I think the first two sessions we, we sort of talked about opening in general terms, and it was a little less structured. And so really, what we're, what we're going to do today is we've come up with 12 tips for opening statement to keep things a little more structured. And it incorporates some of the things that we've already talked about. But uh, that's what we're going to go through today. So with that, let's get started. Number one, be yourself. Be honest, straightforward, honest self-expression. As we've said many times before, Opening statement is talking to a trusted friend about something very important. We've talked about this in prior, prior episodes of the podcast, but
1: how do you do that is, is sometimes difficult. You have a limited time to get to know these folks. They get to know you starting that same day, perhaps.
0: How do you convey that sense of honesty and trust quickly? So here's an, here's an example to kind of get you in the right frame of mind. What if you had a very, very dear close friend and they were about to make what you thought was a terrible, terrible decision, I mean, whether it's a financial decision or or quitting or leaving a job, and you just knew in your heart that it was the wrong thing that they were contemplating doing, would you have any difficulty with this dear close friend sitting down? And and doing an effective job of trying to explain why you thought their decision was the wrong one? No. That's kind of what I'm talking about, okay? When you're talking to a jury, that's the frame of mind you need to be in. Be sincere. You'd, you'd be sincere with your friend, right? Right. And brutally honest, correct? Oh, yeah. That's it. That's the approach, the mind frame for talking, giving opening statement to your jury. Number two, develop a theme. These, uh, you know, frame a theme, it's why you're there the the purpose of being there why the jury is there and for themes in cases over the years I've always I've always thought that jurors respond better when the case is about more than merely compensating your client and actually every case is about more than compensating your client one of the things in our system in our justice system in our tort system is deterrence it's naturally built in jurors get that people understand that I think when for instance, I'll give you an example. I'd say more than half of the clients, potential clients, come in to talk to me about a case. During that conversation, at some point in time, they mention, look, we're here in part. Sometimes it's the only reason they're here is we don't want what happened to us to happen to somebody else. So I think you need to develop a theme, a purpose, a frame of the case. How do you pick one? Go back to why you took the case in the beginning, the time you first met the client. What was shocking about what you were told? What was compelling? What was surprising? What are the elements of a good theme? Simple, concise statement, two or three sentences at at most. Keep it simple, easy to understand. You, You want to engage the mind and the heart of the listener, logic and passion it needs to be fair, it's, it needs to make sense, it needs to convey what's normal and what's expected in those circumstances. Some examples, some simple examples that I've used over the years, profits over safety. Profits over safety. I've used that in, in cases, mostly product cases, where there's a fix, an alternative design that costs not too much, uh, $20, $30 per, per unit they knew about it. they had the design in place for a while, and, and continued to sell products without the, the fix. In a med mal case, one, one that I used was a treatable condition that was ignored by the doctors. That was a case where I had a client who showed up at the emergency room actually having a heart attack. Doctors looked at him and sent him back home. I came back in an ambulance, you know, not doing too well. Another case, another theme for a case, or a frame is patients who go to the hospital for one problem should not die of something else. Somebody goes in for a hip surgery and they, you know, they die of a, of a complication of an infection or a pulmonary embolism. 56 years of disregard for safety. That was a product case I had where it was a bad product. Uh, their internal documents acknowledge it was a bad product. They kept selling it for 50-something 50, 50 years and just settling the claims, settling the cases. Another theme that I used in a case. And, and by that, I mean, that's how I started the case. These are the first words out of my mouth. I stood up in front of the jury in this medical malpractice case and said, people who go to the emergency room should be seen by a doctor. And you, you know what that case is about without me even telling you. Obviously, my client went to the emergency room with a, an emergent condi- emergency condition and was sent home without seeing a doctor. So that's two, I have a theme you have to have the theme of your case. And really the question for theme is what is your case about? Why are we here? Why are you here to the jury? And that's what I start out, start my case out in open. The first words out of my mouth, not hello, good morning, thank you. It's when someone goes to the hospital emergency room with an emergency condition, they should see a doctor. Lots of research has shown that a story is a terrific mnemonic. It's a
1: placeholder for all the facts that come in. And if you can imagine A jury's going to sit there for maybe a week or two, dozens of hours. Where do they put all these facts? If they just have to remember them, that's a tough job. But if you give them a story, then they have a place to put each of the facts as they come in. And the experiments have shown that that's a a
0: fantastic way to help people remember. So third, start strong. And, And by that, I mean strong but safe. The rule of primacy, what people hear first, they tend to remember don't spend time talking about what opening is or whether it's a road map or what the evidence is going to show or how many witnesses you're going to call start strong capture them quickly this case is about alcohol 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 this case is about lack of testing 26 years of disregard for safety capture them quick get their attention Do
1: you think a lot of this the violations of these rules start back in law school. People come out of law school and they start talking about what I'm going to tell you is only evidence and that kind of thing,
0: and it snags you up. Is this just a carryover from, from the old way of communicating? Yeah, I think what happens is we get, we get so much of this stuff in our head about the elements of our case and what we need for submissibility and the exact words we need from our expert witnesses, and then on top of that, you got all of the rules of evidence and the hearsay and what comes in and what doesn't. And you're trying to remember the 46 rulings, pretrial rulings on motions and Lemonade and when whether you're following them or not. And if you concentrate too much on those things, nobody can think straight. And that's why I see sometimes attorneys who are terrific communicators. I mean, just such wonderful communicators and you know how to talk to people. And they get in front of a jury and they got all this stuff in their head. And it's almost like, what happened? They, they forgot how to talk. And And you got to remember... That's why you're there. That's why all of, all of this other stuff is secondary. You got to be able to communicate and tell your story. You need to block that stuff out. I mean, you can't you can't have your head so full of these things and worry, you know, you got somebody else on the other side that'll they'll object if you're if you're doing something wrong, but just first and foremost, tell your story. Moving on, tip number 4. Tell the story from the defendant's point of view. Product case, a, a drunk driver, whatever it is, if you tell the story from the defendant's point of view, the jury's going to reach the conclusion you want them to reach before you talk about the conclusion. They're going to get it. They're going to understand it. The example training, uh, you know, lack of training in a in a in a trucking case, lack of testing in a product case, a surgery case about cutting something you're not supposed to cut. If you let the jury know what the rule is and then you start telling the story, they're going to go, "Yeah, that that makes sense. We know what's going to happen." And obviously. You know, you got the benefit of hindsight, and that is the jury, they get it. I mean, they, they, they get it. So in any event, telling the story from the defendant's point of view, I think, is an effective way to do it. I wouldn't focus in the beginning on your client's injuries or damages. Make it about the defendant. In the case, most cases are. You're there because of the defendant's conduct. Number five, be credible. Overstate nothing. Be absolutely truthful. You got problems in your case. Own them. Admit them. Uh, they're coming in anyway. You know, they're not going away. Uh, you need to deal with them. I think by acknowledging weak parts of your case, acknowledging problems in your case, it really cuts against the stereotype of plaintiff's lawyers. You go in and you say, ladies and gentlemen, you know, I've said that in cases in Vor Dyer and in opening and said, one thing in this case has kept me up at night. I've lost sleep over it. I'm worried about it. I don't think it has anything to do with what, what our claim is in the case, but it just concerns me that some people might think about it differently. Some people might construe it a different way or hold it against my client. And I'm going to tell you what that is. You own it. You talk about it. Uh, as I said, you know, I've, I've made statements in Vordire where, in an opening, where if we don't prove our case, my client's a wonderful person, and horrible things happen to him, but if we don't prove our case, it's okay. You, you don't need to find for us. Uh, just, just, you know, that statement is so unexpected. It's a boost of credibility. People are thinking, well, wait a minute. He's, is he supposed to be saying this? He or she's supposed to be saying that. So I, I think anything you can do, your credibility is all you have. I mean, that, that's what you're going in with your, your credibility. And you want it to be not just intact at the end of the case, but you want it to be enhanced. You want the jurors to connect with you, to trust you. To believe you, and that's a process through the whole trial, from the beginning and Board dire all the way through. So when you come to that point where there
1: is an issue, and it's a difficult issue, and you note it as a difficult issue, it seems like a great chance. It's, it seems like a weakness, I guess, coming you know from out of, right out of law school. Why would you want to say the thing that's weak about your case? But it's a tremendous chance to do some expensive signaling and to say I'm I'm going to lay it out here, and
0: it's your decision, and this is something that might be important to you. Eric, I couldn't agree more. If your client was drunk, guess what? Say it. you going to need to make them trust you. You need to make them trust you. And it's easier said than done because we're advocates and you're in a battle in court and you, you want to win. And logically, you think, well, you know, the more forceful I say it, the more effective it is. And actually, it's the opposite. OK, there's a time and a place. Maybe you save it for, for close. But through the course of the case, you just need to protect your credibility. And, and develop that trust. You're giving up points when you need to give them up. That's a great way to establish credibility. I do, do that in Vor Dyer when we're moving for, for cause and I see a panel member who clearly is not a good juror for the other side. You know, why, why try to rehabilitate them? I mean, the jury can see what you're doing. I will state, hey, I, it sounds like you wouldn't be a good juror for, for them, right? And, and get them off. But if a lawyer is not believed, that case is going to be lost, I just, I just don't know how you get around that. That's something that's so, it's almost, I think it's impossible to recover from when your credibility as a lawyer in the case is shot. I can't imagine moving forward with the case. I mean, it just, it's, it's so very important. When the jury distrusts the lawyer, they
1: distrust the client. That They assume that that, run, that spills over.
0: Yeah, it's just bad news all around. And I've seen examples of bad behavior and other things, and and whoever, and they still won the case. That happens, but it just doesn't help you. It just doesn't help the cause. Next item, number six, be factual. And what do I mean by that? Well, stay away from generalizations, telling the jury in opening, my client suffered terrible pain, extensive medical treatment. What does that mean? Rather than say it that way, be more specific. 37 days in the burn unit. 48 days of rehab 462 doctor visits it's not hard to be factual you got medical records you've got operative reports there's so much good information just in an operative report two or three page summary you can describe that in great detail about what was done during the surgery talking about in detail. My client's mobility has been significantly affected. I mean, that's, that's a terrible statement. What, what does that mean? What does that tell anybody? Nobody remembers it. They really don't know what you're talking about. Go through for four or five minutes or three minutes or two minutes what your client who's paralyzed needs to go through to get up out of bed in the morning and how many people need to be there to help him or her. So I think facts persuade. And the more specific you can be with the facts, the more people remember and, and the more persuasive it is. Psychologists have
1: established that vividness leads to believability. But if you can paint a picture that they can remember and recall, that's going to be great. My question to you is,
0: at what point is, is detail too much detail? I'll give you, give you a good example. It doesn't need to be long to be detailed. I had a client I represented years ago. It, it, we were in trial, and he was a, a boxer who sustained a brain injury that they didn't see or find. And he, he passed out in the uh, locker room with nobody around him. They didn't have an ambulance. He was delayed in getting to the hospital. And, um, you know, the case was about not having a doctor ringside, not having an ambulance available at the fight. And my client was severely brain damaged. He was in, er- in his early 20s. He was a, a contender. Uh, he was a world-class athlete. And I, I struggled. I mean, he had he had 10 Tens of thousands of pages of medical records, doctor visits, ongoing, horrible brain damage. He had trouble walking. And I, I struggled with how can I convey that to the jury? Do I sit there and read 40 minutes of medical records? I didn't think that was the way to go. And what I did is I, I, I was more a little more specific with something that they would remember, but it wasn't that long. And so what I did in, in close, this was in close, not in opening, is I stood before the jury and, and simply said his routine in the morning, and it was. He'd get up in the morning, and he'd run 10 miles, 10 miles, before he started his workout every day. And I said, today, this morning, before we came to court, his mother, who was sitting next to him throughout the trial, had to tie his shoes for him. I thought that was enough. I mean, you know, it's a good way, visually, to convey the injury, the before and the after, so it doesn't need to be long or lengthy. There's different ways to do it, but you don't just want to generalize. You want to show some examples. One example is is just sends a real powerful message. How often do you use demonstrative evidence in your opening? Hold up a, an X-ray report or a all the office? time. All the time. If you tell somebody something, they remember. Remember it. I don't know. I think there's studies out there that talk about telling someone they remember a little part of it in a day or two if you show them they remember more of it and then if you tell them and show them it's the best of all worlds they remember much much more i mean there are all kinds of studies out there i don't know the references or the books but if you if you tell somebody and have a visual that's going to stick in their head that's that's going to remember they're going to remember that way way more you know especially you, you can be creative with the demonstrative we had a case where a two-year-old girl was, was sent away from the hospital three times and as a result was severely dehydrated and ended up losing her kidneys. And one way that we, we tried to show that was we looked in the medical records and saw that when she finally got back to the hospital and they gave her IV fluids, she was low by about 2,000 uh, milliliters, about two liters of, of, of liquids, of fluid. And so what we did is we, we did a demonstrative of taking a two-liter bottle, just filling up with clear, clear water having it there in the courtroom just to show how dehydrated this child was and very, very effective, low-tech, low-key. So there are different ways to do it, but as I said, uh, you know, be, be factual. Be factual about it. Moving on, number seven, don't fight every battle. You're so tempted that the defendant has 15 defenses. You want to address every one of them. Again, this is opening. They're going to hear the evidence. You don't need to address every single point in your case and every single point in the defendant's case. You will lose the jury. You will lose credibility. Let me give you a factual example. You don't need to shoot every mosquito, right? Let it go. Let it go. Hit the high points. You might be tempted because this is tough to sit there
1: sometimes while they're throwing what you consider little arrows at you to roll your eyes or you know, shrug, do something in your seat to let the jury know, I'm not going to talk about it, but I'd, there's a reason I'm not going to talk about it.
0: Is that ever a good idea? Or should you just be respectful, sit sit quietly in the courtroom? I don't think it's ever a good idea. Be respectful, sit quietly in the courtroom and completely ignore it. I think that's the way to go. Mm-hmm. Number eight, save something. You need to save something for the jury, whether it's um you know, prior incidents in the case or some evidence. And I think what you can do in opening is you can suggest or plant a seed and tell them there's going to be some evidence about this issue. And I would just ask that you pay particular attention. And, and you know, I think that's a much better way. If you tell them in opening, it kind of loses the, the effectiveness. We talked in earlier sessions about prior incidents and, and how we use those, not really telling the jury how many you have, but just making a statement in opening saying, this isn't the first time this happened you'll hear testimony that this has happened before and they knew about it and kind of leave it at that. And then when you lay out or present 15 or 20 or 50 prior incidents, if you tell them right in the beginning, this has happened 52 times before, then when you show them the incidents in trial, they're like, yeah, I heard that. We know about that. We heard that. But if you just tell them it's happened before and don't tell them how many, I think you keep their attention. And I don't even give them a number. I just If you're allowed to do it, and if you can, just present the incidents. Present them, and that way, they'll they'll get it. It'll be a much more effective way to do it. Number nine, don't overstate anything. And I'm going to say that again. Don't overstate anything. The worst thing you can do in opening ever. Don't overstate claims. Don't overstate injuries. Anything. You want to understate it. Number 10, address the worst part of your case. There is nothing worse than sitting down after you've given your opening and you thought, wow, I just nailed it. I hit all the points. And the, the other opponent gets up and says, now let me tell you what you didn't hear from the plaintiff's lawyer. Okay, Every, you know, we've been there. Everybody's been there and, 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 and seen that or felt that. Don't give any ammunition to the other side, okay? If they're going to hear about it, they're going to hear about it from me. They need to hear about it from you deal with it. And I'll I give you one, a good example of, of what I did. I had, a, I had a client in a case where, and it was another back injury, fell off the back of a truck. They drove off when he was on the back of the truck on a loading dock, unloading. He had a box in his hand. They drove off and injured his back. I mean, he had, he had multiple fusions in his low back, couldn't work anymore, younger guy. Problem was, he had a bad back. Before this incident, he had a bad back. He'd been going to the chiropractor on a regular basis. But our theory in the case was he was still working. He hadn't had surgery yet. And, and this kind of pushed him over the top. And he had to have surgery. His career was done. He couldn't do any more labor. And so we're, we're thinking about, how do we deal with this in at trial, these prior back problems? And I thought, well, we took the doctor's deposition. And I did a 20-minute direct. It was a videotaped deposition of the doctor. And I told the doctor, now, you're aware of his prior medical, right? You treated him for it, sure. Was he scheduled for surgery? No. Uh, did he need surgery before this? No. Was he able to work? Yes. And I thought I handled it. Well, a very good lawyer on the other side spent about 45 minutes going through every single medical record in my client's past history in, in verbatim, having the doctor read into the record his complaints and radiating pain and all this stuff. And by the time that depo was done, I, I thought it was, it was bad for us. it was terrible because I, I've spent 10 minutes asking about whether, what caused what, And then the jury heard 45 minutes of all of these prior records. Well, we took another doctor's depot, same thing, 20-minute direct, hour cross about all these records. And I thought it was very, very effective, and it it worried me. So in opening, what I did is, and this is the exception, this is the exception for a short opening, I said to the jury, my client had a terrible back, a terrible back before this injury. This was their only defense was, you know, he had a bad back before. And I said, uh, now, this is a little unusual, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to go through the records with you. And I literally, with the PowerPoint, went through every single record that the defense lawyer had gone through with these doctors in their videotaped deposition. And then I said, but that's not why we're here. We're here because despite all of these issues and problems with his back, he was still working, and he did not need surgery. Well, when I got done and sat down, my opponent, good lawyer, stood up and started very sheepishly telling the jury that he had a bad back <laughs> before. And they're like, "Yeah, yeah, we get it. We got it." But that's not what the case is about, right? So again, that was the worst part of my case. That was the worst part of my case, and you got to you got to figure out a way to deal with it. When you deal with it, you can frame it and handle it in a way you know, the worst thing in that case is if I hadn't highlighted that, if I hadn't mentioned it, and then all of a sudden the jury, could you imagine that, listening to him for 45 minutes going on about the prior back stuff? I wanted to hear it from me. And the other thing I said, too, is we've never made a, a secret of this. All of this was disclosed. We gave authorizations to the other side. They knew all about this because we told them about it. We didn't hide it. We didn't run from it. It still may hurt you, but you dealing with it softens a blow. There's no question about that. Number 11, dealing with the amount of damages. I think that's something you have to do in opening. You don't want to hit the jury with a number, a big number, whatever, in close, and that's the first time that they're hearing about it. This is something that you got to start in voir dire, anchoring, you know, conditioning the jury for whatever number it is that you're going to ask for at the end of the case. But you got to let them know what the ballpark is, what you're thinking. And a lot of times, too, if you handle it in voir dire, it'll, it'll take care of itself. I, I routinely ask questions in voir dire about does anybody think there should be caps or limits on pain and suffering? And without exception, in every case, there's somebody that says, "Well, there needs to be some limit, at least tens of millions of dollars, and all of a sudden, you've got a group discussion about whether pain and suffering, whether 10 million or 20 million is sufficient for pain and suffering, it kind of gets the number out there. So to the end of the case, if you ask for 2.5 million, nobody's rolling their eyes. But it's just so important to at least anchor it, or, and you don't need to give a number. But just say significant. You might want to compare it to some of the the, the medical costs, the life care plan, by saying, "Well, you know, the life care plan seven to eight million, and we think that that's the smallest part of damages in the case." You need to condition them for what you're going to ask for in voir dire. You need to do it in opening so that they're prepared for what you're what you're going to ask for in close. And then finally, number twelve is you want to undermine. You do want to address. The defenses in the case. You don't want the jurors to be hearing about the defenses for the first time. You want to let the jurors know that you know these are issues that you looked at, you studied, you considered, and and here's why you think they don't, uh, don't apply or don't float.
1: The failure to do that is they get to go first on those points, and then you have to catch up later.
0: Right. There's a big advantage going first. I mean, you know what's coming, and you need to either dress it, frame it, head it off, but you can't run from it. It's not going away. But again, you know, I think summing up, you know, opening is a great opportunity. The jurors, jury's paying attention. You, you've got their attention at that point. And I think the most important thing is be yourself and be truthful and honest and straightforward. What advice would you give to lawyers who prepare
1: well to get in a trial? At opening statement, they hear the defendant get up and say something, and for the first time, it really hits them, and they're thinking, this is this is much more trouble than i thought it was going to be they framed it much better than i thought they would and they might feel like they lost a little confidence right in the middle of opening statement or right in the early
0: stages of the trial you got to go forward just keep pushing forward i mean you're going to get a chance to present your case as i said I don't, I don't i think it's tough to win a case in opening and so as long as you're being credible and and connecting with the jury and they're, they'll listen to you and it's, it's not over till it's over but it, it's like a it's like a roller coaster. There's ups and downs and you you can't get too high on the highs and you can't get too low on the lows. And I think whatever happens in that courtroom, you you shouldn't show any reaction to it. I can hear something in the courtroom and I'm obviously thinking about it. I mean, something comes up and all of a sudden everybody at the table starts scribbling. <laughs> I'm like, okay, I'm looking at the jury and they're thinking, Well, something something's going on here. We better pay attention to that issue. But there's so many different things going on and you just need to you need to remember who am I representing, and what is this case about? And those are the things that need to be in your head every second, every minute. And if you know know the answer to those two things, who am I representing, and why are we here? If you know those things, and those are locked in, you can deal with everything else coming your way. It's It's about reacting. You need to be prepared to react to what's coming. That concludes our 12 tips for opening statement. That's it for today's podcast. I'm John Simon. I'm Eric Feith. Thanks for joining us, and I hope you tune in for the next one. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with a new episode of The Jury Is Out next week. The Jury Is Out is brought to you by The Simon Law Firm. Share your comments with John and Eric at comments at thejuryisout.law. And if you want a lively look at life and law from a female attorney's point of view, check out our Heels in the Courtroom podcast and subscribe today because the best lawyers never stop learning.